0: Welcome to the People of Canterbury Baptist, a podcast where we meet the people of Canterbury Baptist Church in Melbourne, Australia, and hear their stories and explore ideas relevant to our church and community. My name is Stephen, and for today's episode, let's continue our conversation with John. Hello, John. Welcome back to the People of Canterbury Baptist podcast. Excellent. Thank you. Now, in our last conversation, we had just got you back from Bangladesh. Here you are, you and Heather are back, uh, four children. you moved back into the Canterbury area, and you began to tell us the story about how your time in Bangladesh had inspired you, particularly in the area of infectious diseases. And I think because of that, you began to look to do some further studies specifically in that area. Can you just give us a bit of detail as to how you began this academic journey?
1: Uh- When I was in Bangladesh for nearly five years, uh, for about half the time there was myself and a very good, very nice man, a Hindu doctor who worked with me, and for about the other half of the time I was the only doctor there. So I had to be... in the medical field, physician, surgeon, obstetrician, gynaecologist, paediatrician, anaesthetist, everything. Um, I also, because I was called the medical superintendent, uh, I had overall uh, leadership at the hospital and the uh, Australian Baptist Missionary Society was in the process of forming a managing committee with the National Christians, uh, which uh, we formed and which began and worked well. Uh, So I had myriad responsibilities. Uh, When I came back, uh, I'll say something which would make sense to doctors but it might make sense to other people. Um, I knew that I thought like a physician and not like a surgeon. Um, Physicians uh, like solving problems, mastering uh, a wide range of diseases or a specialty lot of diseases, uh, of unravelling problems, of managing complex situations, often two, three more diseases at a time and uh, certainly in our early years not able to cure many of them Uh, uh, and managing long-term. Whereas a a surgeon sees a particular problem, knows it's in a particular organ, usually knows what he he or she has to do, when in doubt, cut it out, um, and fixes the problem and may well never see the patient again. So we do although it's a generalisation and Chesterton said all generalisations got exceptions except this one, well, it, it is a generalisation but really um, I, I remember a, uh, a registrar we had years later who said, I met a surgeon today and he's such a lovely man, as if she'd never met a surgeon who's a nice person men before because they're much more cut and dried. But,
0: and so you came back from Bangladesh yeah. and I guess with this learning that, that you're much more of a physician by temperament, you you, you yeah. love the puzzle yeah. and you love the complexity of how yeah. one medical condition can stack up on upon another. Is that what motivated you to pursue further study?
1: Uh, well, again, I knew, I thought more like a specialist than a GP. That uh, uh, I had a lot of trouble deciding what specialty because I like nearly all of medicine. There's only two areas I would think of that don't particularly appeal to me.
0: Am I I able able to ask what they are? Uh,
1: I would would say gynaecology and psychiatry. Okay. Um, Psychiatry, I did a year, 15-month training in psychiatry but I thought, I'm not going to make a good psychiatrist. I get too involved with the patients and and uh, uh, decide things subjectively and I ought to be doing it objectively. In the other areas of medicine, I have little or no trouble in being objective. But in psychiatry I did, so I said, shouldn't do that. Um, but uh, again, while I thought more as a physician and surgeon, and while I thought I'd worked in general practice as part of the training, uh, and I thought I could work in general practice, but I'd be a better specialist than a GP. Uh, so I started the training in, the specialist training in general medicine. The Americans call it internal medicine to differentiate physician's medicine from all of medicine. So, And um, medical training is largely within hospitals, but it's governed, uh, directed uh, in Australia, Great Britain, lots of places by learned colleges, uh, which set the examination, the rules and so forth. So our postgraduate training is different from most university graduates' training. If you do postgraduate training in science or arts or librarianship or whatever, anything, uh, you do it particularly at a university or a research institute that belongs to a university. In medicine, while you may do some university study and get some university degrees, that's a lesser part. You mainly do it through, there are major colleges in medicine, surgery, paediatrics, obstetrics and gynaecology, the, the big major, super specialties. Uh, and then each of those will have a lot of special societies gastroenterology cardiology etc and so, how so you- i started training with the the royal australasian college of physicians
0: and that's even though that's that's still a bit generalist you still have not yet landed on the infectious diseases Correct. focus this was sort of one step Correct. toward the destination you're heading and, toward
1: and uh, most most specialists even now Will do a part one fellowship in the physicians or surgeons or obstetricians, gynecologists, etc., psychiatrists, college. And then they'll do part two of training of the same fellowship. You'll get the same FRACP, Fellow Royal Australian, Australasian College, physicians or surgeons, whatever. The second part will be in your, in your
0: subspecialty. So I'd just love to hear your story. How is it that you came to make the decision to ultimately focus in on infectious diseases as the area that was going to be your specialty?
1: I think a number of things came to, to together. Um, the major one was my experience in Bangladesh, where a third of all the patients I saw had what we'd call a tropical infection. A third had a non-tropical general infection, like pneumonia, meningitis, cellulitis, whatever. Uh, and a third have all all the other things that can happen to the human body. Uh, and I'd also had a lot of infections from the time I was a tiny child, uh, even more so in Bangladesh. Um, so. My, the no, long-suffering family as well. Uh, uh, I I liked languages and the long Latin and Greek names of germs were no problem to me. They sit in my head quite easily. Um, my my father cursed himself for it. He gave me a book on infectious diseases, tropical diseases, Uh he he worked opposite the Victoria Market and used to stroll through some lunchtimes, and he was interested in books too. And he saw this old famous book, and bought that for me when I was still a med student. Um, uh, when I went to the head of microbiology at the Alfred, he said, "Oh, I remember you as a student, John. Even as a student, you were coming up here to microbiology." So I had some interested. Microbiology, of course, is the foundation for infectious diseases. Uh, my I, I was quite interested in cardiology and respiratory medicine, but because of the infections that I'd had as a child, um, my hearing had never been good. And I thought, I just can't hear well enough to be a good cardiologist or a good respiratory physician. Uh, s- uh, so all these things came together uh, and then at uh, Alfred, because our training was particularly in hospitals, uh, there was no professor of medicine or of surgery, believe it or not, uh, when I trained in medicine and surgery at the University of Melbourne, for goodness sake, the only medical school in all of Victoria and the same was true in Sydney and, and uh, Adelaide, et cetera, there were not professors of medicine and surgery until the late 1950s. The training was wholly, almost wholly, uh, for the last three or four years of your medical course in hospitals.
0: And does that include the sort of advanced, more specialist studies that you are now entering into as you were moving into this infectious diseases yes, the, area? Uh,
1: again, the, while the um, college, the Royal College's set the um, curriculum, if you like, uh, and certainly set the examinations, although they were hospital doctors who did the examinations, who examined you, fearsome men they were too, very few women in the 60s, 70s. So although they set the framework, the training was still fundamentally within the hospitals.
0: Which means fundamentally you were actually treating or working in a team that treated patients who had the infectious diseases as part of your learning of infectious diseases. Did you find that your experience in Bangladesh dealing with all the infectious diseases that you were exposed to there actually put you at the head of the class? Did did you actually bring in even more competencies than the average student would have had?
1: Well, uh, yes, I did. At times I (laughs) would actually... Occasionally, no more than the teachers, because I'd seen things that they knew about but hadn't necessarily seen.
0: Particularly, what was it? Uh, obviously, your background and your experience had, had led you to a place where where focusing on infectious diseases was uh, what was natural was a natural step to take. But can I ask you this question? Did you find joy in that study? Was it was it was there a joy for you to be able to enter that world and be able to assist people in that way?
1: Um, yes, there was. Um, it'd be the short answer uh, that I, my aim in medicine uh, has always been looking after patients, uh, as in the specialist uh, atmosphere of a uh, the most complicated hospital objectively measured by the health department in Victoria is uh, the Alfred Hospital. It's got more super specialties uh, and more complex patients than any other hospital. Uh, and so when I became uh, subsequently head of microbiology and infectious diseases, uh, my, my duties were, number one, looking after patients Number two, looking after the laboratory. Number three, teaching. Number four, administration. Number five, research. So uh, it was patient-orientated, as you'd expect, working in a hospital, Uh, whereas in a university or a research institute, research would have been much higher and patients uh, much lower in the priorities list. So my... Uh, the job, to, most postgraduate study and training is done while you're in a working job. You, you're not doing it full time. It's part of the day's work added on in, in lots of, of jobs. Uh, and fortunately, I've I've always liked studying and I've always found it easy. And I was studying and looking after patients, which – and uh, that's what brought me into medicine and made me decide to be a doctor when I was seven or so years old. The fact, uh, I said to my mother, doctors are good, aren't they, Mum? They make sick people better. Uh, and so that was always and still is my primary focus. I don't do it now because I'm old enough to just to teach. Um, but still my teaching... Is about patient
0: care. That's qu- that's quite an extraordinary workload that you're carrying there for those years of your life. As you're both a learner and a teacher and a researcher and a doctor, there's um, that, that's quite an extraordinary load. How did you how did you balance life? We talk about work-life balance nowadays. How did you actually manage that workload uh, load and balance that with family and with church and the other responsibilities?
1: Uh with, with great difficulty is, is actually uh, the truthful answer. Um, if if I, I jumped well ahead to the end of my career and came back, uh, one day in the 1990s, um, two men made an appointment to see me and uh, uh, they introduced themselves uh, and said, we've... Uh, come because we've selected you to be Father of the Year in Victoria. And I said, uh, uh, I was taken aback. Uh, I knew there was such a a, a choice made every year. Uh, That never occurred to me uh, personally. And I said, but you don't know anything about me. They said, actually, Professor Spicer, we know a very great deal about you. Uh, we have uh, spoken to many people who know you uh, and uh, we believe you would be a good choice as a father. He, I said, what would I have to do? And they told me of the interviews, dinners, uh, Podcasts hadn't been invented then, but radio, TV interviews, speaking, etc. And I said, Well, I'm, I'm totally flabbergasted about this. I've obviously never thought of it. Uh, I said, Can I talk with my family about it? Oh, yes, they said, It's confidential, of course. Um, but uh, the We'd certainly like you to do it and, uh, yes, you could talk with your family. So I, uh, one son was in London at the time. So I talked with the other three children, Dad and Heather, and uh, to come back to answering your question, uh, three were very enthusiastic and said, yeah, you'd be really good at that, Dad. Yes, you've been a wonderful father. Uh, uh, we think for you. One voice said um, have you considered that you might well have given more time to the Alfred Hospital than to your family? Which brought me up of course with a start uh, and I said well i Better think about that. There's a lot of truth in that, actually. Um, And I thought about it, and I actually went back to them and said, "Look, I'd like to refuse this, if you don't mind." Uh, They said, "We've had a couple of others in the last twenty years. They've been doing it a long time." Uh, Said "I, I. Said I. I've been a good father all the time I've been being a father but it could well be argued I haven't been as full-time a father as I ought to have been. The pressures of being a top-flight doctor uh, and I actually had two or three parallel jobs in the hospital. Being head of microbiology, usually it would be one person and being head of infectious disease would be somebody else and I was also head of all of pathology. Uh, of haematology and biochemistry and anatomical pathology, etc. So uh, the hospital was actually paying me a supplement uh, because they said, you're doing the job of three doctor- two doctors, John. I said, I'm actually doing the job of three. They said, just stick to two. We can't <laughs> pay you for three. And so I, I, uh, I didn't become father of the year. So, yes come back to the basis of your asking, To I really re-evaluated my life then uh, and uh, said I've only got another nine years or so to work. It was 1991 that I was particularly thinking it is. Uh, I, I think I, I'd always been good at deputising because having such wide responsibilities, I had to. Uh so I, I thought, well, I'll just deputise more and I'll do less for the hospital. I'll go home a bit earlier. I won't come in as early uh, and I'll roster other people on as well. Uh, and, uh, uh, yes, I will give more time to my family. It's. I'm sure if you spoke with other doctors in the congregation, they'll tell you the same thing, that it's, so hard the uh, you know uh, I I remember once when the because of the administrative duties I uh, taken on I happened to have some aptitude for that uh, and after I'd stopped being chairman of the medical staff which is the top uh, job that to which a doctor can be elected in a hospital uh, the chief executive had found me so useful that uh, he then invented a job as uh, personal medical advisor to the group chief executive officer and gave me an office near him uh, and arranged that I worked there two half days a week. And one day at 10 o'clock in the morning when I was meant to be there working for him, I wasn't there. You he said, give me John Spicer. So they page me and got me. He said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm saving a life actually. He said, well, you're supposed to be working for me. I said, Bill, my primary job at the hospital is being a doctor. I'm honoured to be your chief medical advisor. I mean, nobody else had. Such access to the chief executive, uh, but I said, really, if to someone sick and my specialist knowledge is going to make a difference to his survival or his health, that's my first priority, isn't it? And he couldn't argue with that. We said, well, be as quick as you can, <laughs> and and so forth. So th- there's always, f- for most of us, there's uh, uh, a tension which. I'm sure lots of businessmen and many others would say the same, but it's a bit different if someone's health has got some dependence on what you say for 10 minutes or half an hour.
0: As you reflect back over that, do you find yourself uh, having some small sense of regret saying, I wish I could have adjusted that balance earlier in my life? Or is it actually more of a sense of resignation to go, actually, the calling and the direction I took in life, that is one of the natural consequences. There really is no way around it. Which, As you're now reflecting back, which which, direct, which direction do you find yourself leaning more into?
1: I think occasionally I could have balanced it better. I'd really be very interested in what Heather will say to you. <laughs> we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to make uh, sure we interview uh, Heather uh, on this one. Uh, yeah. About this... Um, Uh, the the very fact that I concentrate so well at times for hours on end if I have to uh, would mean, yes, that I would be caught up in doing medical things and one leads to another. I don't know – well, I was going to say I don't know that I actually neglected my family. Um, I I remember one occasion on which I did – Uh, not for long, I must say, Um, but in Bangladesh, uh, Joey, our number three, was always getting into trouble uh, or difficulties or problems or situations. And one morning at at home, uh, which was within the hospital compound, um, Heather had said to me, Joey needs you, he probably had a, pee in his ear or snail up his nose or something. I, uh, uh, would I look at him before I went to the hospital? And I said, yes, I would. Uh, and then I got called to the hospital urgently and went down there and stayed there. And suddenly there was a commotion outside my consulting room door because Heather had appeared there with Joey and sat down to wait in line. And this was unheard of. The the scribe's wife, the memsib, was sitting down here and waiting. Of course, she had to. You know, I mean, it, if it had been uh, uh, a Bengali, to which is in a hospital, to which this had happened, didn't matter how many people were waiting in the queue. Or what was the matter? Doctor's wife goes there to the of the queue, and the queue dissolves, and she walks. Australian, and the fact that Heather, in her Christian civilised way, that down to weight. So um, uh, on, on that occasion, you might say, I, I neglected my family for a while. It was speedily remedied.
0: <laughs> what was your... Um what was your thesis in? Without going yeah. to too much, it's always yeah. a dangerous question no. to ask, but without going to too much, but I'm just curious, what was the particular part of the infectious diseases world that you really honed in on for your thesis? Um,
1: because it's hospital or college training, there's not a thesis.
0: Ah.
1: There, there, there is the alternative of doing it by thesis and getting a university qualification. But I've got, um, two, three, I've got eight postgraduate qualifications. Um, you'll probably never hear anybody say to you, as well as my two initial bachelor degrees, I've got the equivalent of four master's degrees and four doctorates. But none of them are called master's degrees and none of them are called doctorates. They're called. Uh, memberships or fellowships or postgraduate diplomas or masters. No, not masters. Uh, uh, so, although uh, they're from uh, in um, microbiology, bacteriology, tropical medicine, uh, general specialist medicine, sexually sexual health physician, uh, uh, general pathology. So they're in a wide constellation. Uh, I I once got six postgraduate qualifications in six years. My friends think it's the Australian record because normally you can't do that because each one of them will take two years or three years or five years. Um, And I did it because I... uh, Studied for two or sometimes for three at the same time. Um, uh, you can't do it now because the, the way they are organised is is different. But uh, to, to summarise, because you asked how I did I do the training, I started training in, in internal medicine as a specialist physician. And after a year – because I'd done so much, this was after uh, 11 years after I graduated and most people are starting when they're three years graduated. But because before going to Bangladesh, I did two years in medicine, a year in surgery, a year in obstetrics and gynae, a year in paediatrics and a year in psychiatry so that I knew something about everything to go and work in a peripheral Hospital in developing countries, where I had to know something about everything, uh, and then worked doing something about everything in Bangladesh, and then came back unconventionally to start postgraduate training uh, when I was thirty-five or so, uh, and so in a year and a half, I or less than that it was March. Um, uh, I got the, the first part, the MRACP, member of the Royal Australasia College of Physicians. Uh, and it was that stage that I thought, yes, I want infectious diseases, is the pathway for me. So I went to the head of microbiology at uh, Alfred. He's called actually the director of bacteriology, but that's part of microbiology. Uh, and I, I said to him, did he think there would be room at the Alfred, because I was thinking of coming back there, uh, for a young physician interested in germs, infections, antibiotics? And he said, that would be wonderful, John. Um, i retire in a year and a half. He worked at the Alfred for 52 years and nine days. Started as a 16-year-old boy and worked his way. Um, apart from myself, it's still the record at uh, Alfred. Um, unlike myself, he did it continuously from the uh, time he was 16 to 66 or no, it must have been 14 to 67 or something, that, that sort of time. Uh, he said, that'd be fine, I'm retiring in a couple of years' time, uh, which I knew, uh, and the uh, the two physicians at the Alfred most interested in infections, a so-called general physician and a respiratory physician, they were also retiring. Uh, and he said, we've got wonderful scientists here, but to have a doctor trained in that area would be excellent, yes. Uh, he was thinking of someone training particularly in microbiology. I said, I'm actually, I'd love to train in micro, but I'm more a treating physician than a microbiologist. He said, that's all right, you can do both. We'll train you both. Uh, we, we made up a training course. There was no such specialty in Australia at the time. There were the infectious disease physicians who existed weren't called infectious disease physicians. They were staff physicians at Fairfield Hospital or the corresponding medical unit in a teaching hospital In Sydney, they'd closed their specific infectious disease hospital. So there were doctors that had some of my aimed uh, mm, career path, but they weren't working in general hospitals or in isolated specialist practice, and certainly none in the country in regional areas. So we made up our training. Scheme. I, I went to Sydney and did a Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene at Sydney University, so that is a university qualification. Uh, and then I went to London. I had a Alfred Hospital postgraduate uh, scholarship and a Commonwealth Medical Fellowship, uh, and they paid £1,822 for a year for six of us.
0: Was that sufficient or was that fairly low? Oh,
1: that was terrible. I remember Heather talking to a rugby-playing family from New South Wales who were in the same uh, postgraduate college as we were and she was complaining about the price of meat, the wife of the other family. And they are three big rugby players and she was spending nearly £30 a week on, on meat. And Heather was spending, I think, twenty-two pounds a week on all our food. <laughs> we didn't eat much meat, did we, when we were in in London? And we saw, unfortunately, relatively little of of England and London in that time, because both the the uh, course was quite uh, intensive, and we yes, we were pretty strapped for for money at the time. Uh, and then I came back to Australia and then I finished the fellowship of the Physicians College and then I got a, a membership of a microbiology society and then uh, I – what was the sixth one? Oh, and then the, the, the Pathology Fellowship, the, the badge for being a pathologist microbiologist laboratory person and so forth. And so uh, it was a mixture of university training because I had done so much clinical training uh, with patients already. Uh, So long as I could pass the written exams in patients, which I had, uh, then the, the experience counted. So it was a composite of... Of uh, specialties uh, that I put together. Big, big. Uh, when I went to, uh, uh, I went, How did it happen? Oh, I know. Uh, the Australian Army was revising their uh, handbook on war medicine. Uh, particularly war injuries, and uh, they asked uh, the head of microbiology at Royal Melbourne Hospital, an Englishman at the time, um, would he chair the, the for the chapters on infection. Uh, and he said, well, yes, I could do it, but it would be more appropriate if that young fellow... He was in his late 50s and I was 40 or so. At the Alfred, he said he's much more a clinical microbiologist looking after patients. He's really more of a physician than a microbiologist, which was true. He'd be more appropriate. So I chaired uh, the uh, writing, the chapter, there was a working party, working party for. Injuries of the head and neck, injuries of the chest, injuries of the abdomen, injuries of the limbs, injuries of the nervous system, etc. But there was an overall chapter on infections. Uh, And I uh, chaired that. And then we went to a school of army health uh, up at Heelsville, which existed then, uh, and went through each of the chapters. Well, of course, each of the chapters, whether it's on head and neck or abdomen or wherever, is going to deal with infections in that area, isn't it? So every chapter they'd be asking me about something uh, to do with that chapter and because partly, largely because of the experience in Bangladesh but also at the Alfred uh, and the training, I was fully trained by then. Uh, and I was uh, 43 or so by that time. So I normally knew the answer to each of their questions and they came to me afterwards and said, uh, would I join the Army Reserve? They said, we've never met anyone like you. You know about medicine, you know about surgery, you know about antibiotics, you know about infections, you know about infection control you know, about dressing of wounds. They said, you'd be fantastic in the army. You know, I, I I hate warfare. I I I ended up the oldest private in Melbourne University regiment, the least distinguished soldier possible. I'm not at all not, don't like army and regimentation at all. Um uh, so I said, Oh well, yes, I'll think about it. Thank you for asking me. They said um, you'd, you'd get quite a decent rank. You'd be at least a major, probably a lieutenant colonel. And from the, from the least appropriate salt, private in, in Melbourne University Regiment to lieutenant colonel was a bit of a leap to, uh, to me without trying. Um, and I thought, they're going to be asking me about German warfare. I know about anthrax and they'll be asking me about that. I know about gas gregory and they'll be. I know about plague. Not many doctors in Australia know about plague, but I do. uh, So I said, actually, I thought, please, I don't think I'm really fitted for army life. So I didn't become a lieutenant colonel after all.
0: How did you become a professor?
1: I received a phone call at two o'clock in the morning on a very hot night in London. There aren't many hot nights in London, but the 14th of August uh, 1991 was a very hot night and uh, uh, I answered a phone call with no clothes on uh, in the middle of the night. The phone was ringing and I thought we were in a flat within London Hospital where I was doing part of a sabbatical with just Heather. The the children weren't there this time. Uh, And the phone was ringing and I thought, whoever would be ringing our phone at two o'clock in the morning in London? Only my parents know we are here. No, my parents were all dead. So so I let the phone ring, quite frankly, but it rang again and... It was my secretary on the end of the phone and she got so excited she'd opened the letter and so I answered the phone. She said, Dr. Spicer, Dr. Spicer, you're a professor, you're a professor. (laughs) And it was total news to me. Somebody I don't know to this day who nominated me. I think I know. I think it was the University Department of Microbiology at the Alfred at that time. And I taught in that department uh, and I think that they knew me very well. They, they knew my attributes, my experience, my qualifications, the sort of person I was, uh, the way I ran the microbiology unit, the way I rang the, the clinical infectious disease unit. So I think it was from there that the staff kindly nominated me without asking me uh and so uh because of the way I was appointed uh it it was as I said, i believe i, I don't know because I didn't have to fill any forms or apply or anything. I was nominated uh like the father of the year um they'd done the work on me that was i mean perfectly easy to find out. Uh, what qualifications, what experience, what appointments. Uh, it's perfectly easy to, in, in this sort of circumstance, to talk to my uh, uh, my team members. I was going to say subordinates, but they're not subordinates. To my staff members, to other people in the hospital, it would be perfectly easy to find out if you are competent or incompetent uh, and so forth. Uh, and so it was a combination. Uh, I mean, by that time I was uh, over fifty, so uh, and uh, I had uh, uh, a, a lot of the experience around uh, uh, not just the Alfred, but throughout Victoria, uh, and because of a particular book I ought to tell you about, um, I was well known to uh, all the senior microbiologists and infectious disease physicians in every state in Victoria. So if they wanted to find out whether I was worthy of being a professor, it would be perfectly easy for anyone in that area to, to find it out
0: now there is a book sitting beside you you did uh, you did tap that book and yes. as you reference it just then so what what is this book and what's it well uh,
1: there, there are two books I'd tell you about um, in 1975 in november 75 it was actually golf Whitlam's day 11th of November 1975 um i, I was... As soon as I got into the hospital, the scientists who started work an hour before me, uh, they started at eight, I started at nine, they said, come and look at this. And uh, it was a the sort of agar uh, plate on which germs are grown, uh, on, on which on this plate there ought to have been nothing. It's a, a plate that's used with an antibiotic within the uh, plate, uh, and it was the one on which golden staff was put and it was an antibody which at that time killed every golden staff in Australia. And here, for the first time in Australia, here from two different patients was a resistant bug. That's why I still remember <laughs> the date. Um, and I said, are they two specimens from the same patient? They said, no, they're patients in adjacent beds in Ward 3. Uh, and I said, where could it have come from? That This bug was known in a couple of places around the world. It'd never been reported in Australia. And here we had two of them. Uh, and it was the best antibiotic against golden staff. Uh, That's a penicillin. Uh, There was a reserve antibiotic which worked against them. It was one we tested for. So it wasn't that it was untreatable, but the best, safest, cheapest, uh, least side effect, best antibiotic now would not work against them. And I said, where'd it come from? And they said, well, we don't know, do we? And I said, no, it's my job to find out, actually. So myself and the senior microbiologist went down to the ward and saw the patients. They, they each had a wound, narrowing adjacent beds. And well, no, certainly one of them must have got it first and the other one transferred by a nurse or somebody in the ward. So... And my senior microbiologist, Alan Percival, uh, who'd had more experience than I in the laboratory, he hadn't with patients, but in the laboratory, he said, "John, either we've been very clever, we've created this, which is possible, unlikely but possible, uh, or he says, come from somewhere else, and statistically, that's more likely." So where did it come from? Uh, we both said it's most likely to have come from another patient rather than just blown in the air or somewhere uh, because the, the way such a bug is created is usually by the use of antibiotics. So I went to the phone and rang up the senior microbiologist at Royal Melbourne, Queen Victoria, Prince Henry because those hospitals were open at that time, Monash wasn't, Uh, St Vincent's and the Austin, And I drew blank with all of them except one of them. Uh, Yes, I can say it, that has got no medico-legal or other ramifications Uh, 40, 50 years later, nearly, uh, was the Royal Melbourne. And my friend there, Ken Harvey, said, yeah, actually, we've got one here, John. Two, three days ago we found it. Uh, And I said, has anyone from the Alfred been there or anyone from your hospital been to the Alfred? He said, I'll go and check. And he came back and said, yes, uh, a surgeon named so-and-so, uh, from the Alfred, he's dead now actually, uh, came because he's got a particular uh, infection uh, f- from and the Alfred had the state uh, the state reference unit for that particular infection at the Alfred and so they asked this man, a surgeon, to come up and see this patient. So I said, oh, I'll talk to him. So I rang him up uh, and I said, I uh, nearly said his name. Uh, I said, y- you saw a patient at the Royal Melbourne four days ago, John. And he said it, yes. He didn't actually say yes. He said another word because he it comes from another country. Um, uh, and he said, in effect, yes. Uh, And I said, and uh, he had an infected wound and you examined him? And he said, yes. Uh, And he said, and I said, and then you might have looked around for a wash basin but you're in a foreign ward and you couldn't find one and then you came down the Alfred and he said, yes. It's getting a bit suspicious by this time. Uh, and I said, "And then you went to Ward three. He said, "How do you know all this, John?" And I said, uh, sometimes they call me Dr. Sherlock rather than Dr. Spicer. Uh, he said, "Why are you asking?" I said you. So uh, I said, "Then you saw a patient there in Ward Three and you examined him. He's got an infected wound and you had to look at that. He said, yes, I did. He said, what have I done, John? And I've said, you've brought a highly resistant organism from the Royal Bowman Hospital to the Alfred Hospital. That's what you've done. He went as white as a sheet. He was a very conscientious good man. Paradoxically, when I refused Father of the Year in Victoria, they gave it to him, <laughs> <laughs> not not knowing, of course. I think I'm, you and I are probably the only ones who know that. Um, well, I thought, shortly, I thought, everyone I, else in Canterbury I, Baptist Church. I, I, I thought how ironic. And he was on the infection control to, committee and he was zealous about spreading infection control uh, at the Alfred uh, so because of that uh, we told the health department and the health department uh, at Fairfield Hospital called a meeting and said we've got to do two things in Victoria because it was already in the two major hospitals of the time they said we've got to teach people more about infection control and we've got to teach them more about the use of antibiotics. So we started two little booklets uh, and the one on antibiotics, which I I haven't brought that one here because it's largely computerised now. We have it in our computers rather than as books. Uh, So we wrote a book, 28 pages, tiny little one, designed to fit in pocket of white coats that we all wore, most of us wore then, it was distributed free by the health department to every doctor in Victoria. And similarly, the book on infection control dist- distributed widely in Victoria. And uh, New South Wales and South Australia, when they saw them, said these good little books. Uh, and we said, well, we're, by the time they did that, They'd been in use for a while. We said, we'll write an update. You come, we pick a doctor from each of those states to come in and join us. Um, Western Australian naughty fellas, they published the same book with a different cover, word for word, the entire book, copyright, but they did the proper book. And uh, it We said, hey, chaps, that's not cricket. You can't do that. Come and write it with us and we'll put your name in it. But it became the Australian reference. Uh, I was a senior author for 32 years uh, of it. It became the largest selling medical textbook in Australia. Uh, We then wrote, got cardiologists and said, how about you write guidelines for cardiology and we got neurologists and gastroenterologists and then uh, it came out, it grew to about I think 12 booklets covering every specialty and now I haven't got it there because it's computerised because there's a lot of cross-reference between them Uh, and it's still going on Uh, and it's uh, become a real phenomenon. It was used as a pattern by the World Health Organisation. The wretches, they did the same thing as Western Australia, <laughs> lifted page after page, word perfect. And we wrote to the World Health Organisation and said, we're pleased you use our book, but you can't just use it, it's copyright, you know. They wouldn't admit it for ages because they thought we were going to sue them. We said, we're not interested in suing you. All we wanted two things. Number one, recognition. It came from Australia. And number two, you printed it in, a, in your subsequent editions based on Australian therapeutic guidelines in antibiotics. So they did and so forth. And uh, uh, they asked me about it in England. I said, have you got a sabbatical? Can you come in England? And then they said, uh oh, so many big famous people here, they'll they'll never coordinate the way you have in Australia. It's fantastic that you've been able to get every state in Australia to write it. It was a very cooperative good. It was a very nice body on on which to work. That's that was the that particular book, the fortieth anniversary uh edition and that was the Australian reference before our our big one. So and the, the last one is the one from which I take my lecture notes. Um, which, is,
0: which is actually a book written by you. If I'm going to see the cover again, it's called Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, an Illustrated Colour Text by W. John Spicer. So this is the textbook you've written, which is also the textbook that you use in your teaching yeah, as well.
1: because when I, when I uh, lectured to varying groups from hospitals, um, I, I say to them, I've picked the first cue make it easy. And for the other tutes, I want you to pick the subject on which you want me to teach you. Uh, I said I've got 105 tutorials in my head or in my computer or in my book because it's got 105 chapters. Um, and each of them is complete on two pages. That's that's one particular one on one germs. That's on another diseases. It's it's both germs and diseases, and it fundamentally covers all significant ones, uh, including tropical and sexually transmitted, etc. So uh, it, it's it's actually I'm sure it's the reason why I'm able to keep teaching at the age of eighty six, um, be, because uh, it's first of all it's third year halfway through their medical course. And so it's relatively basic and therefore relatively unchanging. Uh, It does change a bit. I've reviewed this morning the notes that I've sent out at lunchtime on which I'll teach tomorrow as an update on the chapter there. Um, So each time I teach, I update it. But it's easy to do because I know, (laughs) because I've kept up to date, Uh, and uh, there's not much in every chapter that needs uh, much change. Unfortunately, um, although it went into, um, there's a Greek edition, uh, a Portuguese edition, a Spanish edition, an Italian edition, Uh, but because of the internet where you can get, up-to-date, really up-to-date. I mean, published last Friday, it's on the internet, um, on, well, everything, and a lot of them uh, is is, uh, not copyright intentionally, so it can be used. Uh, And these sorts of things are on the internet. People can get pictures if they want them. Uh, I've got a thousand or more pictures. Uh, most of these are taken uh, either at the Alfred, or I did the drawing, and and then a medical I- illustrator uh, pretties it up and makes it consistent through it. Uh, and and so lots and lots of medical textbooks are now not printed at all as textbooks. You just take them off the net, and so I I don't have to update it. I'd like to, but
0: I can't. So let me take you back to London just for a minute. You get this phone call announcing that you have now been made a yes. professor. Your title changes from doctor to professor. Yes. What pra- Can I ask the question, what practical difference did that make? Was it more an, an honorific thing, which is a recognition yes. of the work you'd previously Correct. done? Yes. yes. Um, so, so it didn't necessarily change your day-to-day work? Uh,
1: no, not significantly. It, it changed my... Prestige, perhaps a bit, but I mean it was the other way round. It was fundamentally built <laughs> on the prestige of what I'd a- already achieved, uh, and and the the actual particular what sort of professor it is, the adjectives in front of it they've changed a bit over the the time. You know, well, I'm now an honorary professor, for example, uh, uh, but. Uh, it, it facilitated my work in some ways because of the title, um, but less for me than for many people because, uh, you know, some people become professors uh, and it's a, a university, not only a university title, but a university position. Mine's a university title for fundamentally a hospital position. It was, uh, didn't change my hospital position. Because I was already director as high as you could go in the in the hospital, um, it it changed my position in the university a bit, but not very much.
0: And- Just reflect with me for a minute here. Um, what does the title of professor mean to you? And I really I ask that largely because I just notice often in your emails you'll sign off as Professor W John, or you know, or even on telephone you'll answer as Hey, this is Professor John speaking. So the professor, you've, it's not just a title; it's almost been adopted as part of your name. So I am just curious, um, what does the, the, this uh, the title professor actually mean to you on a more personal level? I suppose it
1: means recognition of. What you've been doing—twelve hours a day, sixty hours a week, or whatever it might be—for thirty, forty years or so—it, uh, uh, but it, it, it doesn't mean to me as much as being a doctor. Fundamentally, I mean, it, it occasionally facilitates something. It facilitates things more among lay people than uh, among uh, medical positions because uh, I was already in, as far as I was concerned, the best medical job for me and my family and my patients in uh, in the, the city in which I wanted to work. Uh, for For a number of people, it makes a difference in getting higher up the ladder but I was as high up the ladder as I wanted to go or in some ways uh, I could go because I was the first infectious disease physician in Australia full-time in the general hospital. uh, I was already in the forefront when they, in this one, when they asked the first 40 years of infectious diseases in Australia I'm the one that they asked to write the first chapter yeah. because I was there at the, at the beginning. I'm one of the few, I, I think there's only one other foundation member of the Australasian Society of Infectious Diseases still alive and, and certainly only one working. <laughs> Which is yourself. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you so much for just taking this time and just journeying us through this academic uh, academic history that you've been through. Just really appreciate you opening up this part of, of your life. So thank you for taking this time. But I think we still have maybe one more step in our journey yet to go. Okay. And so I, I very much look forward to being able to catch up with you again sometime soon.
1: Good. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you to everyone who is tuned in to listen. This podcast is produced and presented by Stephen Field on behalf of Canterbury Baptist Church, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email cbc at canterburybaptist.org. If you're a member or regular attender of this church, how about you get in touch with John directly and thank him for his contribution today. The music is a song, The First Step, by Andrew Naylor from his album Two Stones. The album is available wherever you purchase or stream your music. Join us next time as we continue our chats with the people of Canterbury Baptist.